Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA. The information in this podcast is meant for the benefit of physical therapists. It is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and or treatment. Individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner with questions. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist in an outpatient neuro clinic, and I'm on the podcast committee of the DDSIG. I'm excited to be here today with Mike Lewick and CJ Dupin, both from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Um, so Mike, let's start with you. Welcome and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, thanks Parm. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Mike Lewick. I am a physical therapist and I am faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, I'm in the Division of Physical Therapy, which is in the Department of Health Sciences, and I also help direct our Human Movement Science PhD curriculum. Um, and finally, I also am part of something called the Closed Loop Engineering for Advanced Rehabilitation Corps within the Joint Biomedical Engineering Department. So happy to be here. That sounds busy. It is. Yeah. That's a lot of things, but very exciting. All right, so CJ, let's um, have you introduce yourself as well. I'm a PhD student in the Human Movement Science program. I am also a physical therapist. I took a bit of a different approach to get here. So I graduated from PT school in 2016, took a few years off to practice, was really inspired by what I saw in the clinic to uh, do better for our patients, honestly. So I reached out to Mike and now we're trying to make that a reality. <laughs> That's great. All right. So, you know, the topic that we're going to talk about is really related to gait training in people with Parkinson's. But some of the work that you have done is uh, based on the concepts of implicit versus explicit motor learning. So I thought we would just start there with a little bit of definition, kind of bring everybody up to speed on those terms. So CJ, do you wanna um, sort of tackle that to start with? Yeah, so the explicit motor learning is more of what we do in the clinic when we cue people. Take longer steps, walk faster, you know, land with your heel first. Things that when asked to, you know, repeat what they did, they could do so. Um, and they could tell you how they did it as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas the implicit motor learning is more how we think of like riding a bike. So we don't necessarily know how our knee and our ankle bend at a certain angle to get us to pedal the bike the way we want to, but we can just kind of hop on and make it go. Mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, we've, we know now that the implicit and explicit motor learning actually occurs on a continuum. So yeah. Most motor learning involves both processes, mm -hmm. but there are definitely times where it would be more beneficial to either use the explicit weighted cueing or more implicit weighted cueing. Okay. So can you give us an um, example of that, say, in a clinic with people with Parkinson's? I mean, you kind of did with the 
explicit and that we're telling people to take big steps. Um, what would be an example of implicit motor learning that we might be using? Yeah, so one example that you know I used frequently in the clinic was just kind of mixing things up without telling people. So we would do obstacle courses and we'd have students in the clinic a lot, which was helpful. And I'd have them go ahead of me and just change where the obstacles were. Or I would, you know, change something else without them knowing. We'd be doing a reaching task and I would change the target. Um, and one cool thing they have now is virtual reality for Parkinson's where they can actually change targets and even change goals without explicitly telling patients. Um, mm -hmm. And that's another good way to pull in some of that type of learning. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, I, you know, I do want to get into kind of what you guys are doing in the lab and how you think that that relates to what clinicians are doing in the clinic. Um, just before we move on, though, Mike, did you have anything to add to what CJ said about the motor learning concepts? No, I think CJ is spot on. Okay. Um, you know, we, we know that there's there's a continuum of motor learning mechanisms um, and we can kind of grade them anywhere from implicit to explicit, very implicit to very explicit. Um, and, and so the choices that we make are somewhere along that continuum. And for a long time, it was thought that people with Parkinson's disease had trouble with implicit weighted learning um, techniques that involve more implicit learning, but that's not, that's been shown to not be true mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. So I, first of all, I like this idea of the continuum because I, I feel like sometimes we start with explicit, but we want people to kind of feel it in their body. And then when they transfer it, say, right, to another task, it's the same kind of concept or, or um, motor solution or a similar motor solution. When they're transferring it, we want to not have to give them those cues because you're not with them all the time to give them the cues, right? So I really like that concept, I feel like it makes total sense, but I don't know that I've kind of heard it that way on that continuum. I think I always kind of feel like I'm, I should be in one bucket or the other. So thank you. Like you just changed the way that I'm going to think about my patients tomorrow. So that's great. And then I also know that there has been this thought that people with PD do not do as well with implicit learning why like why did we think that for a while and what work has been done to kind of you know debunk the myth it's not necessarily that it was a myth i mean it it's still true it's just that as it turns out there's you know more than one neural pathway for implicit learning so you know the more we know the more we don't know right mm -hmm. so there's one half the first half of implicit learning that now is believed to take place in the hippocampus, which is not as affected for people with Parkinson's disease. Whereas there's the second half, which is called the proceduralization that is thought to occur in the striatum, which as we know, is more impacted in people with Parkinson's disease. So I think, you know, prior studies looked a lot at like more of the proceduralization based training Mm. And people with Parkinson's disease really struggle with that. So it's it's not even a myth. It's just someone thought of, 
hey, what if we switch things up frequently enough to keep them out of the second half of implicit motor learning? And it worked. And it turns out that people with Parkinson's disease can learn implicitly similar to their age-matched peers, so long as they're kept within that first half of implicit learning. All right. And so like, what does that mean, that first half? Yeah. So um, it's the rapid encoding part. When you're making constant adjustments to your actions, I almost said steps, we do a lot with gait. So I might refer everything back to walking. But when you're constantly changing an action without knowing that you're changing an action, you're staying in that rapid encoding. You're constantly having to re-encode what you're doing and the processes it takes you to get there. And that's the part that, again, as far as we know, occurs in the hippocampus. But if you're taking something like um, riding a bike is probably not the perfect example, but it's a very common one. Mm -hmm. If you're riding it on flat ground, nothing's changing. You're exerting the same forces. Your body's moving the same. Over time, you'll get into more of that proceduralization. It's the same task. And while you can't explicitly say how you're doing it, Mm-hmm. you've done it long enough for it to become proceduralized and that process is thought to occur more in the striatum. And so does that mean that people with Parkinson's can't proceduralize their learning? So it's less of a can't and more of a, it's more difficult. Um, so we talk about the, you know, the motor learning continuum. And I actually thought you brought up a good point when you're like, we start with explicit and then we kind of move towards implicit and it kind of follows along the line. So we start with very strategic cues and then kind of goes towards reinforcement. And we know that people with Parkinson's disease probably struggle a little more with reinforcement learning because mm-hmm. again, that involves the basal ganglia. And then we kind of progress past that. We've practiced it enough. We get to use dependent learning. That's less explicit. And then there's the sensory motor adaptation at the end, which is the most implicit, um, which we believe is less impaired. So it's less of a can't, more of a challenge, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So let's talk about gait, since that's a lot of what you do and a lot of what we do in the clinic. Um, And so how are you applying these concepts to training gait in people with Parkinson's disease? We're in the the very beginning stages right now. Um, so we actually just had a paper published in the Journal of Motor Behavior um, for young unimpaired controls first. So we're taking something that we constantly do in the clinic with the rhythmic auditory cueing. And we're trying to subtly vary the metronome in like over like 20 second time segments and hoping to keep it like below the threshold of conscious awareness. So people don't know the metronome is changing, but they're adapting their gait to it. Uh, And we got really good results for young unimpaired adults. Um, They were able to change how they were walking without knowing that we were asking them to change how they were walking. So We're in the process now of writing it up, but we've also done it for some older adult controls and people with Parkinson's disease, and we're hoping to have that out in the next few months. Okay. So when you say you're altering, so you're using a metronome, what do you base that starting metronome on? Is it like based on their self-selected cadence? 
It is. So we use something called targeted rhythmic auditory cueing, which I'm going to let Mike take it from there. So when we think about targeted rhythmic auditory cueing, what we're trying to do is target specific spatial temporal parameters of gait. So when we think about a kind of stereotypical gait pattern for somebody with Parkinson's disease, we expect to see short shuffling gait pattern. And so our goal is to try to help them take longer steps. Um, we also know that there's challenges with automaticity, repeatability, and metronomes, external cueing, it's a great way to address that. Um, it's one of the techniques that's thought to help um, and, and is listed in the CPG that came out last year. Mm -hmm. It's something we should be using. What we do with rhythmic auditory cueing is not just try to match their cadence, though. We try to target the, the cadence in such a way that we can get the effects on step length that we want. So, for example, when we have people walk on a treadmill and their gait speed is fixed, if we put a very slow metronome cue, they're taking very slow steps on a treadmill, they have to take long steps or they get shot off the bat. Right. And so that's our way of enforcing long steps on a treadmill. And so we train people to take very slow steps on a treadmill, prime them by taking these longer steps. And then we transition to overground where we jack up the cadence really fast. So they've just practiced taking really long steps. Now they take these really long steps very quickly and they go very fast. So the, what we're trying to do is really target those specific spatial temporal parameters of step length and cadence in such a way that we can optimize gait speed. Right. I do just want to touch on, um, on, on one other aspect of how we select our cadence, um, which is that, well, certainly in the lab, we have, we have maybe a little bit more sophisticated equipment um, with pressure mats that allow us to be able to measure cadence pretty accurately. Um, but that's easy to get in a clinic. Any metronome, most metronomes are going to have a feature where you can just tap along with the with, with with the metronome. Every time they step, you tap, and it gives you whatever their cadence will be. Mm -hmm. And so you know what their comfortable cadence is. And what we do then is we we target eighty five percent of their comfortable cadence of their comfortable overground cadence for the for the treadmill stepping. And then when they're overground, we target one hundred fifteen percent of their comfortable overground cadence. So if we can figure out what their comfortable cadence is over ground, we can then just simple math to get 85% for the treadmill and 115% for over ground. Mm -hmm. Now, we, I will say some people do have a hard time hitting 85%. Um, and, and we've shown in a study that as we, as we drop that value, the cadence, their accuracy in hitting the metronome cue drops. Mm -hmm. So, and we think that's just because they're having a hard time taking longer steps. So they're, they're close to the, to the target cadence, but they're not usually hitting it exactly. Um, but even though they're not hitting the cadence we, we exactly want, it's improving their step length. So and we're still getting good results. And are you allowing people to use the like upper extremity support on the treadmill as they're walking? It depends. Um, they do, if they do, if they have to, we discourage it and we wean them off it as soon as we can. So when you have them on the treadmill, you're slowing down the, the cadence in order to increase the step length. 
and just kind of getting people used to that pattern. How long do you have them on the treadmill for? It varies anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. We've done some training studies. Um, frankly, we do it as long as we think somebody can go, mm-hmm. um, up, up to usually 15, 20 minutes. Our goal is to try to increase endurance as well. Mm-hmm. So we're giving them you know, as, as much as we think they can do knowing that we have to then also train over ground mm-hmm. at the same time. So we've had some people who can walk for 10 minutes. Um, we'll train for 10 minutes. If they, if they can go longer, we're going to go longer. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I was thinking about as we're talking about this kind of aerobic, you know, kind of layering on this aerobic piece to the training that you're doing, you have them at a cadence of 85% of their chosen, whatever comfortable, self-selected cadence. Um, on the treadmill, but what speeds are you using? Are you just choosing a speed that allows for a long step length at that cadence? We usually start them at their comfortable overground speed because if we start them at their comfortable overground speed with a very slow cadence, it becomes really challenging for them mm-hmm. because they're forced to take a long step length. Mm-hmm. Now, as they as they become more accustomed to it and they're able to start hitting those those step lengths that we want. They're able to hit the cadence that we want. And their heart rate isn't climbing high enough. We will increase the treadmill speed. The goal is to try to get um, heart rate up. But also, it's it's, it's tricky because we're, we're try- we have multiple goals right, during training. Right. So the goal is to try to increase heart rate response during training while also allowing them to be able to hit the, the metronome cues. Yeah. Sometimes we can't do both. Um and so we have to we have to kind of pick and choose which we think is going to be most important and, and kind of balance between those two. Because what we're really trying to do here is specifically increase step lengths. In most cases, we are sacrificing the heart rate response for the ability to hit um, long step lengths. Mm-hmm. But as they become more accustomed to it, we increase the speed. Now, increasing the speed, though, as you increase the treadmill speed, it, it makes it harder. Right. It makes it harder to hit those those tempo cues. So um, the, the challenges continue to mount as we increase speed, not just to the, the cardiovascular system, but to the ability to hit the tempo cues. Yeah. It's harder to hit, take long step lengths. Right, right, right. And it, it seems like at some point you would have to increase the cadence because you can only step so long, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Are you, do you guys just, I'm just curious, do you have like some kind of fancy dancy, treadmill that measures the stride length like every stride are you getting that data so that you can kind of help to make sure that they're hitting some kind of specific target so the short answer is yes we do have um, a treadmill that allows us to measure step length we don't use it for training though Um, we use it on our pre-test and we use it on our post-test but when when our participants train they're training on a regular treadmill like a regular clinical Okay. And so you're just kind of visually seeing that they're taking a big step length during training and you're using those parameters that you've already set up of the speed and the 85% and, and allowing that to kind of let you know that they're taking a bigger step length. Yeah. Because gate speed is a combination of your, your cadence and your step length. Right. If your if your gate speed is staying constant and your cadence goes down, your step length has to go up. Right. And so if, if they're matching the cadence that we want, then we have confidence that they're hitting the step lengths that we want. 
Mm-hmm. So we don't target specific step lengths. We target a specific cadence because that's something we—that's something that's easy to control in the clinic. Step lengths are really hard to control, but cadence is easy to control. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a timing parameter. And timing parameters are something, frankly, that people with Parkinson's struggle with. Mm-hmm. It's those temporal cues that are, that are challenging. And who are the people so far that you've been doing with it with in terms of your people with PD, like H and Y? Yeah, I think they were all twos. Yeah, which is, I mean, I think it makes sense, right, to sort of to start at that level, but then also makes it um, tricky for us to apply. And we have a study that's that's going on right now that's starting to look at um, both twos and threes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you have them on the treadmill at this kind of slower cadence to get that long step length, and then you have them walking over ground and how long is that for typically also about 10 15 minutes and how often are you doing this training with people like what's your what was the protocol you used they trained in the lab for three times a week for six weeks and we did some mid-test assessments after two weeks and after four weeks um we found the greatest change you know after two and then four they were still improving by six, but it was definitely slowed down mm-hmm. um, between four and six weeks. Mm-hmm. So we think that if we had continued, maybe we would have seen improvements, but certainly the bulk of the improvement happened earlier, which I think is probably common. Yeah, right. When So when people were are on the treadmill, are you telling them to step to the metronome? That's the initial cue they're given is to step to the metronome. Um, the goal is for them to eventually entrain to it so that they're not really thinking about it, but that it just kind of happens. Um, but to get them started, we do ask them to step to the metronome. Okay. And then over ground, do you do the same thing? We do the same thing. Um, hopefully by the time they've practiced, you know, it, it's one of those things where when you start them, you have to give them some instructions just to get them started. But once they come in a couple of times, they know exactly what they're doing. So we don't have to give quite as many verbal cues to get them started. And they just know that once the metronome starts, I'm going to be stepping with it. Um, and they do that both over ground um, and on the treadmill. Okay. And so what kind of improvements, like in these preliminary studies, what kind of improvements are you seeing in people? So we saw really exciting changes in gait. Um, our goal, of course, was to change spatial temporal parameters. And we did. We showed improvements in step length. We showed some improvements in gait speed. Um, the other thing we were hoping for was to see some improvement in balance. And we thought that if we, even though we weren't practicing any balance testing, we figured if we're going to show improvements in, in their gait, maybe some of that's going to carry over to balance if they're able to you know, take longer steps, they're going to feel more confident on their leg um, you know, in, during stance. Uh, but that didn't turn out. We didn't see any improvements in balance, at least in our initial cohort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what were you using to measure balance? We used the mini best test. Right. So you have people doing this walking, and so you're seeing improved step length and improved gait speed, right? And for and then did you bring them back like after the six weeks to see how long those benefits lasted? Yeah. So we did bring them back. They we do our post test usually a week after training. So that was our our follow-up test. And then we, we had them come back three months later to 
to see how they were doing. And, and they continued to maintain the gains that they had at the post-test, which was encouraging. Um, I, I think a lot of times we see changes after therapy and then people go away and they disappear. Um, right. So the fact that these maintained were, was really exciting. Yeah, Mike, kind of kind of like going back to what you were talking about with the metronomes, I, I think I'm a little pushier. So when people finish the study, so we ask them not to do it during the study because we want to protect the legitimacy of it. But at the end, I'm like, here is this free metronome app. And I'll like help them download it onto their phone. And I'm okay. like, this is the number you use when you're at the Y on the treadmill. And this is the number you use when you're walking like outside um, with your friends or what have you. So I, I push them a little more to use it. And I kind of use that to the PT's advantage too. I'm like, if you go back and see them and they can update your numbers uh, and you can keep working on it together. That's yeah, that's great. Um, you know, and it, it makes sense because people are probably invested after they've done these, you know, studies and so that's great. So what are you working on now in terms of like, it sounds like you have some people that are more like H and Y two and three. Um, and are you doing just this training protocol that you just described with us? Is that what you're doing with currently with all of your study participants? We actually have a couple of studies going on. That is one of the studies that we're doing. Um, we're, we're comparing, um, our, our targeted rhythmic auditory cueing um, with high intensity walking. Um, the goal is to help everybody walk at a high intensity because um, we know that's going to be beneficial. And so um, that that is one of the studies we're doing. Um, I'm going to let CJ also talk about some of the work we're doing, um, looking at gait initiation. Yeah. Uh, so we know that walking is extremely important. There's you know, a million benefits to getting people with Parkinson's up walking as much as we can. But in order to do that, we have to start walking. So we know that people with Parkinson's disease have trouble taking that first step. It's smaller, it's shorter. They tend to land more on their forefoot than their heel, which kind of has their center of mass going forward past where it should mm -hmm. go. Um, and it places them at at higher risk for falling. So what we're trying to do right now with another one of our studies is kind of, you know, figure out why that's happening and how we can best intervene. So there's, you know, two main schools of thought. One is that gait initiation is basically just an extension of gait. So they're taking a shorter, smaller first step because they take shorter and smaller steps mm -hmm. in general. Uh, the other school of thought is they're also um, demonstrating some deficiencies in what's called the anticipatory postural mm -hmm. adjustment that happens before mm -hmm. we initiate gait. Um, so the thought is that if they don't have a large enough APA, they're not shifting their weight over towards their initial stance limb far enough to fully clear the floor with their stepping leg and take a nice mm -hmm. long first step. Um, so one of the studies that we're doing is we're actually queuing for larger weight shifts strategically. So we obviously can't queue for an APA or it wouldn't be anticipatory anymore. So we're trying to get people to have larger APAs 
by asking them to shift their weight more aggressively towards their initial stance limb. And we're looking to see if that's gonna affect the first step length or the first step speed. Um, we're also looking at the effect of general gait training on gait initiation. So we're using the targeted rhythmic auditory cueing while people are walking on the treadmill and overground and seeing if that translates to improvements while people are initiating gait. And, you know, what about the like cognitive demand of what you're doing and then how that translates into like everyday walking, whether it is that initiation of gait? I mean, are we telling like, are you thinking, I know we don't know the answers to a lot of these questions yet, but are you thinking like people need to make this like a cognitive strategy to increase their weight shift in order to improve that APA? Yeah, so our hope is that we're going to be tapping into a little bit of the use-dependent plasticity. So um, having them practice it over and over and over again, so it becomes less of a cognitive task. But the, the nature of the training itself requires a dual task. So we're yeah. using visual biofeedback. So we're using just visual cueing to let them know when they've hit the weight shifting threshold. So it's similar, but not identical to like a go, no go. So they have to stand there, shift their weight, wait for it to turn green, take the step and then go. Uh, so it does introduce a little bit of that uh, dual tasking, uh, which Actually, I'm also hoping it helps because <laughs> um, we know that that dual tasking is something that people with Parkinson's have difficulty with as well. Mm. And the real point of the the training for gait initiation and the reason why I'm I'm looking at all this is we we have treatments that we know work to improve the first step length and the first step speed of gait initiation, right? Like we've used tape on the floor. There's the laser cane. Um, there's the metronome that beeps, or sometimes we'll have people count out loud before they take the first step. And those do help. Uh, the problems are not very feasible, um, and sometimes they're just not appropriate. So if someone's going out to the grocery store, we don't expect their, you know, their friend or their partner or what have you to go into the store before them and lay lines all over the grocery store where we think people might be starting and stopping walking. And then with a metronome, you know, people would have to you know, put headphones on or, you know, hit play every time they want to start walking. And it's inconvenient and in itself, very cognitive <laughs> to remember to do that every time. Right. And then, of course, with the laser came, you know, sometimes our people have trouble initiating gait, but they don't need an assistive device yet. And we don't want to give someone a cane that doesn't need one. Right. Um, so I'm trying to come up with a way to train for better gait initiation so that we can kind of move past some of those, um, I guess what you call like in the moment treatments for it. Yeah. You know, as I'm listening to you guys and thinking about this in terms of like the patients that I have and that I see in the clinic, you know, to some extent, it's like, it's frustrating that we often get people later on in the disease when it's really hard to train this stuff. Like I evaluated a guy today, there's no way I could put him on a treadmill. Like he could barely walk safely over ground. Um, so even more reason that that early intervention is so important. 
also, we know that there's other things that are really important. I mean, like the CPG is great, but it also is like high recommendation, high recommendation, high rec- like there's so many things, right, that we should be doing with people. Where do you see this sort of fitting in, in somebody's, you know, journey with physical therapy? Like how early, I guess, should we be thinking about doing these kinds of interventions? That's a great question. Um, and, and a very broad question, because we're now thinking about the entire continuum. And I think you're exactly right. The training that we're doing, we, we have not done any of this work um, with anybody who's honing our stage four, right? Because we can't, we, we, I mean, we can't do that. So this is intentionally meant for folks who are a little bit earlier on in the disease process and in the progression, um, but really meant for people who are starting to show deficits in their gait. And so you're right. We want to make sure that early on we are targeting, you know, all systems, right? Aerobic training is, is really valuable. But once we're starting to see some changes in gait, you can now incorporate some specific things into the aerobic training. I mean, if you think about our gait training as aerobic training, we are we are intentionally trying to get the, the heart rate up um, while they're on the treadmill, while they're on the ground. We're just doing it in a way that's also hopefully benefiting their walking. Hopefully it's going to make them safer. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully it's going to make them more efficient. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, as, as you said, it's somewhere in the middle of that journey. Um, probably not appropriate for somebody who's really early um, and may not be showing any deficits in their gait. But it's also something mm-hmm. where somebody who's, for somebody who has progressed to the point where putting them on a treadmill is not safe, the sorts of things we've talked about probably are not appropriate. And the hope being that if we're doing some of those things earlier, we can delay, right, the amount of time until they are not, you know, that they, they delay the amount of time until they can't do this kind of intervention or or delay their, their gait problems, which are going to come eventually, right? Right. But I think that's why we're particularly invested in the notion of how motor learning impacts their their changes in movement, because we hope that we're making changes that are not just temporary, but they're going to be a little bit longer. And the longer these changes can persist, the better the better we're going to be. Mm-hmm. And have you been looking at their aerobic response to this training? We have, uh, so that is, that's part of what we're looking at in our current trial, um, but we don't have any data on that yet. So you're monitoring like heart rate or heart rate and blood pressure? We monitor their heart rate, um, yeah, while they're training. uh, And then we measure VO2 both before and after um, Mm -hmm. as as a pretest and Mm post-test. All right, you guys, well, I have some things to try tomorrow when I go into work. (laughs) I'm pretty excited. So we have a tradition here at 4D of asking people what they like to do when they're not working. Um, So CJ, let's start with you. What do you like to do when you're not working? Oh, my normal response is uh, weightlifting. 
Um, that's my favorite, but I was told by someone that that's exercise and not for fun. Um, so I also like to do a non-academic writing in my free time. Oh, that's fun. Um, we a hundred percent support exercise as something fun. So that's cool. I really thought it was going to be something about the menagerie in your house, but how many animals do you have? I need to know. Uh, we have four. So we have two Bernese mountain dogs and then uh, two cats of some sort. <laughs> nice. Um, okay. All right. No fish or reptiles or. No, we left it at a petting zoo. So yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. All right. And Mike, how about you? What do you like to do? Well, first I'll tell you, we do have the reptile. We have a turtle um, and two dogs. So, um, so what do I like to do? I, outside of work, I probably spend my time doing one of two things, either I'm going to be running, uh, which I enjoy. I've been running since high school, since somebody convinced me in high school to start running. Um, or I'm going to be watching one of my kids doing their sports activities of which they do like everything. Mm -hmm. Super fun. Yeah, that's great. Enjoy it while you can. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope that as the stuff gets figured out and you do more and more work, you'll come back and um, talk to us more in the future. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. For more information on the SIG and ANPT, visit neuropt.org. Our podcast team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Christina Burke, Ken Bonacco, Shannon Brown, Jeff Schmidt, and I'm Parm Paget. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Please share this episode with a colleague today. And there are bloopers. I don't know if we said that. Uh, I have two Bernese Mountain Dogs. Wow. They're a handful. Like a house full, right? <laughs> yeah. we. Um, our couch is basically their giant dog bed. But to be fair, she has a whole zoo living in her house. So Gate initiation. <laughs> they finished all their treats. So um, there are two main you know, theories for... <laughs> Um, and we do have the editing, you know, capabilities. So when we do talk over each other and sound like, you know, we can cut out the the person who sounds like a jerk for interrupting. How do I feel like you're looking at me? That's my pet peeve. I get so excited and I'm like, oh, and then I like end up talking over someone. And when you go back and listen, you're like, wow, that was so rude. Pardon, where are you? I honestly, I don't know. I'm at different places all the time. <laughs> I have three kids. Two of them are out working and one is out at rock climbing and they will be home around nine. So the internet will be sucked out of my house the minute they walk in. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, I was talking about the time I was yelling at my kids, get off the internet. <laughs>